Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is Make It Kind. I-P. With Massimella Mark Thompson. Make it kind. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, it's an honor to have in studio with me once again, no stranger at all, but it's always great to have him and still always an honor. Um, he um, was someone that I watched early in my career. He's a pioneer when it comes to media, BET, MSNBC, NBC, CBS uh, and uh, now Bounce TV, right? Did Bounce? I, I can't keep a job, man. Can't keep a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what you call being a journeyman. Ed Gordon is here with us. How are you, my brother? Good I'm to good, see you, man. man. Always you good looking to see well. You, brother. Always good always, to see you always. too. And um, a brand new book out, folks: Conversations in Black on Power, Politics, and Leadership, where he interviewed some of the. Uh, most influential uh, newsmakers, uh, policymakers, thought leaders in the black community. Um, what inspired you to do this right now? I I had this thought in 2012. Mm-hmm. Started interviews in 2012, then got a television project, and that kind of waylaid this, and I put it aside. And um, just the circumstance of the day, uh, I looked around and I thought, you know, all the great interviews that I do often, and you know this, some of the most intriguing uh, conversations happen before the mics are turned on mm-hmm. or after they're That's turned right. off. That's right. And I also thought about the blessing I've had to interview all of the types of people yeah. that I interview. And I thought, man, wouldn't it be great if I could get everybody in one room mm-hmm. and hold a conversation? Well, if you look at the list of people we have, I knew that would be an impossibility. Right, right, right. But I said, man, what if I do this virtually? where I'm interviewing everybody and then I put it together and the book reads and it does as if we were all in one room holding a conversation. Now, if you had not said that, nobody would know the difference. Because when you read when I looked at it, I, said, I had to stop for a minute. I said, wait a minute, was everybody together in the room? And I realized, well, probably not. But the way you structured it, it's almost like that because everybody's commenting on the same topics and right. you, you kind of put it together and organized it. In the same way. Very, very clever. That's good. Yeah, I mean, I I just felt like um, I didn't want the book to read too academically. Sure. I didn't want it to be a book only for policymakers or political heads. 
Um, I wanted the book to read as if we were all sitting around the kitchen table or at the barber shop or in the backyard waiting on the barbecue to finish right. because those are where we have these discussions often. Right. And I wanted them to come off like that. You know, I didn't want it to be too wonky. Right. I wanted right. whomever um, to enjoy it. And we talk about each chapter is a different topic. And so we talk about any number of things, not just politics. We talk about, of course, the black vote. We look at the Trump years. We reflect on the Obama years. I ask everyone in the beginning how they see the state of black America. But we also look at the images of black folk in the media. That's right. Um, There's a chapter in the book called Am I Black Enough for You? Mm -hmm. You know, we Mm -hmm. still are in that handing out the black card and who defines black and who says what is and isn't. And so we've just taken a real look at – black America comprehensively, I think, and uh, just ask some of the questions that we all grapple with. Um, is there something about 2020? Now, now, I know you. there's a chapter in here dedicated to Obama. Yeah. Um, is, is, what does it mean to have a book like this post-Obama? And does that say anything about the Obama era? Well, I, that's what I wanted to specifically talk about in that chapter. What what is the legacy of Barack Obama? Mm-hmm. And what are those years, those eight years now with some reflection, what did they mean? And, you know, it's kind of two schools. You and I have talked about this privately <laughs> a lot. Uh, there are two schools of thought. Right. Either he's your forever president and, you know, he's the greatest thing ever. And I think we're all proud of him. We're all proud of that family. We're all proud. Or there's a side that said, look, historically, what he did was great. But policy-wise and what he owed the black community for 95, 99, 98, whatever the number is, uh, percentage of that vote, did you really pay it back? And so there's some question of whether or not the quid pro quo, as Mm -hmm. Mr. Trump likes to uh, talk about, um, you know, whether that was paid to the community that really walked in lockstep blindly to a degree uh, with this president. Um, I noticed in that particular chapter, I mean, I, I think people were were, were kind of generous, but one person I was surprised that was more critical of Obama in, in hindsight than I expected him to see somewhat was was Reverend Sharpton. Mm-hmm. I mean, even he was like, you know, well, there was some things, and he talked about how he was not an an activist, and sometimes that we, Obama was not an activist. That Obama, yeah. Obama was mm-hmm. not, a, and how you know sometimes people hold certain individuals up to a certain standard that maybe they just don't. That's just not who they are. Mm-hmm. But I thought that was a very interesting conversation. You know, what I was most proud of is as you go through the book, there is a certain candidness, I think, that had I been doing these interviews on camera, I would not have gotten from some of these folks. Mm. You know, often when you do – I mean, I think that's the nicety of radio when it's not streamed. And even even with it being streamed – People don't see it in the same way as if they're in the studio or there's a television camera in front of yeah. them. There's a certain guarded nature um, to television that you don't always get, particularly the way I did these interviews. E- either I went face-to-face with folks or we were on the phone and we were the only two on, you mm-hmm. know, people on the mm-hmm. phone. And so I think that lets you guard down a little bit. I try to explain, guys, I want you to be as candid as possible. So, you know, even with black leadership, you know, a lot of people took black leadership to task and ask, and I ask in the chapter, you know, last 20 years, we've not moved the needle a lot in some of those measurables that show advancement, education, closing the wealth gap. You know, these are things for the last 20 years have been pretty much stagnant or regressed to a degree. If that's the case, then we have to start asking black leadership, where are you? What are we doing? And what I'm hoping from this book to engage people in are new narratives. I think we've had some of those narratives that have taken us as far as we can go, and we keep relying on them, yet I think in terms of where we sit today, maybe a little outdated. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't be marching, doesn't mean, but we should augment some of those things. And in some cases, we probably should lay them to rest. Um, and that's a good point, too, about people being more candid, because people sometimes do change when they're in front of a camera. That's, you know, I, 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 I agree with you on that. Um, also thing, too, and you and I have talked about this, and all of us in the book have all talked about it individually and collectively, social media has changed everything. And so now, far, I think, far too many of our discussions 
on these topics, Ed Gordon, are taking place on Twitter. Right. Which is not (laughs) appropriate or helpful. And everybody's got an opinion, and then it just becomes a whole nother, you know, kind of a thing. Especially on Twitter, you know, the whole debate about these issues in our community, and you don't know who's tweeting or who you're talking to. We need something like this for people to latch on to that is a real and genuine and and conversation amongst people that have a vested and a vetted interest, a vetted interest in our community, not just random folk. Right. What we're asking people to do, and I, I appreciate that you picked up on that, and, and as you noted, we do talk about that in the book, the idea yeah. of social media and its component. Um but what we're asking people to do is, is get your own group of people together, read the book right, together, right, and right. then have dialogue beyond the book. And then, most importantly, find actionable items that you can then move on. I mean, uh, just the front cover, these are folk that we have, and there are 40-plus people that I got to right. participate in this. But Maxine Waters, Yonla Van Zant, Charlemagne the God, Stacey Abram, D.L. Hughley, Eric Holder, Jamel Hill, Al Sharpton, Michael Eric Dyson, T.I., and as the book says, and more. Yeah. And may I just say to your listeners, I tried to add another uh, media person uh, to this list, and um, he didn't call me back. I'm going to look in uh, the camera. He didn't call me back for his interview. Uh, we were running around the hotel at Sharpton's convention. You sure did. I sure did. What happened? Uh, you what didn't call me back. That's what, what happened. <laughs> so I just, I just want your listeners to know that I didn't leave you out. <laughs> I did not think about you. I did. Okay. All right. That being said, because we talk about truth and transparency. I know so what I happened. I know, what, I know what happened. Okay. Whatever. It, whatever it, that happened. was crazy. Okay. That was a crazy okay. time for me. It was. Because... Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, that's the weekend. I, I every you know what was going on. Every presidential candidate he had there. That's that's, that's the true. that's the weekend. Brittany, all the presidential candidates were up at the hotel, and I interviewed all of them. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. running around like a chicken with my head cut off. But I remember now. You did ask I me. I did. So I, I'm sorry. This is I love you, man. It's all right either way. <laughs> no, you know I love you too. Um, I'm glad you reminded me of that as well. But at the end of each chapter are some uh, uh, some outlines, some questions some points to consider yeah. for you listeners to start your own conversation. And again, that's healthy. We should be getting back into, and, and some people are, book clubs and study groups. Right. But, but, but around issues such as this and have healthier discussions than some of what is taking place on and social gonna media. And we're going to do some of that, you know, as I start the tour. Okay, good, we're going to go around. Um, that's good. Uh, to not only book clubs, we'll have, you know, small town hall meetings. But as I say in the book, I don't want to just have, I, I've discussed this with you. You and I go to a lot of these conventions, but I don't go to as many as I used to mm, I know you're right. because <laughs> we're doing the same thing. It's annual. I Listen, I love the people in the Congressional Black Caucus. I'm friends with some, acquaintances with all. Right, right, right. Uh, but... To continue to have the CBC weekend or week as we do and not measure what we come out of there for the first or the next year, I tell them sometimes just record the panel and re-air it the following year because Mm -hmm. we're talking Mm -hmm. about the same thing. We, We have to start a new narrative, and that is how do we change what we've been doing that is not necessarily working now? Yeah, And that is having too many of these meetings, complaining on stage, saying that this is what we need to do and da, 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 and then leaving and doing very little of what we talked about for that hour and a half. The conversation literally vanishes into the evening. That's exactly right. And, you know, you've been doing uh, doing this uh, a little bit longer than I have, although I didn't realize how close together we are in age. Um, but I'm sure you've noticed, man, a lot of these conventions we see each other at, with our organizations, God bless them all, including the CBC, the the annual event becomes the end rather than the means. That's exactly right. So as soon as organizations such and such convention is over on this date, the planning has to immediately start for next year's <laughs> convention. You know what I'm saying? And as we also know, sometimes the best conversations don't occur in the formal gatherings 
But in the sidebars, some of us get together in, in the right. hallway or the restaurant. And, and, and like I think what you do in terms of new narratives and thinking uh, in a new way. So when you and I first started going to these conventions, you and I were young. That's right. Um, and there were young people at these conventions. Now, when you go, there are very few young people at these That's conventions. Right. That's right. That's and right. so part of what we talk about in the book is the new dynamic. And this has happened historically, generationally, between the new guard and the old guard. That I don't expect to go away. But what we have to start doing is either updating the ability of, of these tried and true organizations to attract younger people or truly pass the baton, which isn't going to happen easily. It's interesting in the book because when I talk to um, traditional black leadership about their relationship with the younger guard, they believe it's a better relationship than the younger guard said to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They saw right, it as, right, they course. still see it as very paternal. They still see it as you're not listening to me. Mm -hmm. Some of that is human nature and natural, but some of it is a disconnect and we can't afford that disconnect. We are, and again, I, you know, I, I know people are probably tired of me saying this, but you and I and some others talk a lot about what we see and that's another thing. We are in a crucial time that I think the malaise that has hit us for so long, particularly since the election of Donald Trump, um, has us in a stupor that we are kind of walking around in a daze. And I keep telling folks, Stacey Abrams says in the book, if you think these four years have been bad, if he wins again, mm. she says, mm. strap in. Mm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yeah. someone asked me in an interview yesterday, well, what, what are we going to do if he, if he wins? What are we going to gear up for? I said, you will have missed the gearing up point if he wins. <laughs> you have your opportunity. Now right. Right. is your gearing up time. Right. Right. If he wins again, you missed gearing up. Uh, and that's, of course, one of the, um, um, top, the chapters in the book, Stay Woke and Stay Active, the new black voting muscle do in, in the conversations, folks again, the book conversations in, in black on power politics and leadership in these conversations, um, did you find that people agreed or disagree that we have now really realized our muscle? Are we exercising that muscle like we should? Do we still take it somewhat for granted? So I think most people understand that we see that there is a muscle there. We have seen over the course of the last four years the ability to flex that muscle and change the dynamic of a vote, a shift a seat, a chair, a state. Whether we know how to use that muscle yet, though, fully and engage it um, and make it commonplace, I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. Um, you know, if you take a look at Alabama when, when we talked about black women making sure someone in the book said, making sure a pedophile didn't right. get that seat. Right, right. Um, that was black women. Yeah, that was black women. And it was a, 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 it was geared up effort to make sure, you know, Tamika Mallory and Angela Rye talk about the idea of what black women have done in, in, in that process. But I don't think collectively we've figured out that if we give this vote to someone, you're owed something. Mm. It's not enough. Election day is not the end of the race. That's right. That's right. It should be the beginning of the race, because if your candidate wins, now you need to say, OK, I ushered you in. I gave you I gave you what you wanted. Now you give me what I need. You know, it actually reminds me of uh, someone you and I both admired a great deal. God rest his soul was Dr. Ron Walters. Absolutely. And remember, he used to always say that our problem is we elect people, uh, and then when they come in the room, we don't hold them accountable. Instead, we genuflect. Yes. He always said that. And um, essentially, that has yet to change. That's what we need to deal with. Here's, you know, somebody uh, asked me, and, and you asked me at the outset about why now? Why, why write the book now? Why put it out? So let's look at this week. NFL season coming to a close. Mm -hmm. Rooney Rule came into effect 2003, which was, was a rule that dictated that any time a head coaching spot opened in the NFL, you right. had to at least interview a That's minority right. candidate. That's right. I think there were five slots open this year. Ron Rivera, who is not African-American but a person of color, 
though seen by most people as white, mm -hmm. uh, did get a job. Mm -hmm. The rest of the slots have gone to white men mm -hmm. uh, with a gentleman with the Kansas City Chiefs, Eric Bieniemy, who are still in the playoffs. You can't talk and interview until your team is out. Is the only African-American candidate that people are really paying attention to. He probably will not get any of the jobs. Yet there was this hope that because of this rule, we were going to see all of these African-American coaches uh, get their opportunity finally. Same week, five years after Oscar So White, we turn around and see that, in fact, um, we had one African-American who was nominated in the critical acting categories, mm -hmm. the principal acting categories. Right. Same week, we look at a stage that will essentially be colorless now with the Democratic nominees. This is why I wrote the book. But let me say this. Outside of the NFL, I don't really care because I'm not an actor if you nominate black folk for Oscars. If mm. I'm an actor, I want the nomination and I want to win because it elevates my paycheck. Mm. As a fan, I understand what that voting body is and who that voting body is. And those are your sensibilities. Mm. Right. You look at all the, the Oscars that are one uh, that are period pieces and those periods are always in England. They're always of a certain time. Powdered wigs. And <laughs> That's what they love. Yeah. They're right, not right. going to give, you know, just mercy necessarily a salute or the things that we love. I talked to Omari Hardwick about the Emmys. I know he's disappointed that Ghost has never been nominated. Right, but right. I tell him and told him this week, bro, carry on. Yeah. People love that character. Right. And if they don't acknowledge it, we do keep it going. Yeah. After the Obama win, that doesn't mean that every single time we should have a person of color who is elected president. Maybe even, maybe even, we don't have to be represented every time on the stage. But it seems to me that this was more than happenstance that the colors started to fall along the wayside this go round. So that's why I felt it was time for this book. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, it, it is interesting that, you know, the stage is, is all white now, it, which, you know, I think, though, somehow betrays what we know and what everybody else has to acknowledge is supposed to be our black voting muscle. But... Black folk decided, many of them, I guess being pragmatic and primarily in South Carolina, older sisters and brothers said, well, you know, we're going to go with the vice president to the black man, you know, as opposed to, <laughs> to but, anyone But else. I also suggest to you, and I agree with that point, okay. I also suggest to you that we did have black candidates out front, and for whatever reason, mm -hmm. they did not catch on in mm -hmm. a way. Kamala Harris never really fully caught on with and I'll put this because we're not a monolith, but there is monolithic thought in our community at times. I don't care of what course. anybody says. Of course, of course. Or, or, or at least majority thought, let me put it that way. Um, she never caught on in a way that I think some people had hoped. Cory Booker, who stepped down this week, never really jumped off uh, in, in, in that way. So, you know, part of that is being able to sell to a pragmatic community that's saying, you got to speak to me. You've, you've got to give me something beyond color to say this is why I'm down with you. Because as much as uh, people talk about black folk, I say, you know, we stick together, but we are pragmatic. Mm -hmm. And just because you're black does not mean that we're jumping on your bandwagon. If I like Joe Biden better than I like Cory Booker, I'm going over here with Joe. Yeah, That's not our nature. You know, other folk tend to say, well, I'm going to go over to the guy that looks like me. Even mm -hmm. if I like you, I'm probably probably going to have more in common. And, and just that nature is ours is not that. True. Ours often is, nah, bruh. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm going over here. Right, right, absolutely. Well, since we're on this subject, what, what do you think of, of, about the race? And you alluded to being prepared for Trump to be reelected, God help us. But um, the party that we're in, let's be honest, the majority of African Americans yes. in the Democratic Party, um, I, I think Jesse Jackson even once said Democratic Party uh, would be a black political party if we knew it and acted yeah, like yeah. acted like it. So where is that? Can our, these folks that are left and 
probably next couple of weeks, I'm sure there are going to be a few more to dwindle after Iowa. What do you think? Where is this head? And is it the person we seem to be supporting right now, Biden, is he the one? Can he do it? Or are we, like, in serious trouble? Because obviously we're going to be disproportionately affected as black folk if Trump right. is reelected. I think Joe Biden probably missed his strongest window, and that would have been 16. And, and so certainly with all the mm. personal things that were going on mm-hmm. in his life with his son and the like, I understand his want not to run. Mm-hmm. Uh, politics is a, a very, as they say, fickle mis- mistress. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you drive by the house and you don't stop. You should have stopped that you night. You should have stopped you that know. night, right, right. Because <laughs> <laughs> you missed your shot, right? So right, right. <laughs> um, I think that may, in fact, be the case uh, in terms of the final win. Uh, you know, Biden, w- without any true gaffe or blunder, is probably going to, stumble into the finish line with mm-hmm. this. I think when I talk about new narratives for black folk, the Democratic Party needs new narratives. Mm. This is a dysfunctional party. I, I remember even as a kid, I would listen to uh, the adults in my family. They would laugh about how dysfunctional Democrats can be mm-hmm. because you know, we're the big tent party. And with right, it. Right. Yeah, well, that's why sometimes you lost some of the elections you lost because of that and because of not just the diversity but the dysfunction in it. Um, at this point, I don't see anybody being charismatic enough to just overwhelm most of Democratic voters who will run in November to support you. So you got another big sell, just as you did in 16. You, you need to learn from Hillary's defeat that it's not enough just to go to a church on Sunday and say hello to black people and take two or three celebrity photos I know you did. I know I did. I know Roland Martin did. There were a number of us in 15 who tried to tell their uh, group as we got close to the election, hey, you all are not talking to black people like you should. A picture with LeBron and Beyonce is not enough. I remember uh, getting a chance, I put that in quotes, to go to Flint with her. We were going to do an interview they called me at the last minute and canceled. So, oh, well, we'll pick it back up again. I never heard from them after yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And I was talking to black people in the campaign as well. Right, 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 and right, so right. I would say the same thing as I think about where we sit right now. I don't see anybody charismatic enough that is just going to sweep folks to the polls in November. Mm, mm. And the Democratic Party needs to think about how do we energize our base? Because here's what I know. This man who sits in the Oval Office has energized his base. Yes, And people have been asking me about the Iran situation this week, and I refuse to talk about it. Not because it's not important, not because it couldn't blow up into something else. I just refuse because I'm not going to play into the wag the dog uh, scenario that he has given us. Because think about it. Until we started hearing about um, the impeachment papers going over and the theater that will be. Right. He was able to get the news cycle on to looking at something else, and you didn't for a week hear a thing about impeachment. Mm-hmm. That's right. Not one thing. That's right. That's right. That's and right. so we have to be careful. While while it is important what is going on, and it could lead to a major catastrophe, catastrophically it could, but we have to be careful. And be smart enough not to let the impeachment and the uh, papers and the trial uh, die on the vine. Because, listen, he's not going to be impeached by this thing. Right. He's, yeah, he's not going to be removed. Right, right. Yes, removed. I'm sorry. Um, but you're not talking about it. Um, I'm going to infer, because that's where I want to go next with you, that's part of your training and experience and professional expertise as a journalist. And I'm not saying this to brag. You and I are a dying breed. Yes. Folks who actually went to school to study and get degreed in journalism. I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying that as somewhat of a tragedy because now anybody who's got a social media account can be a journalist. And the industry has dumbed down and traded objective, investigative journalism and what you just said, the kind of scrutiny, the kind of questions for access, because you need access right. to get clicks in this so and in this social media atmosphere. So you don't want to rock the boat. 
and I'm going to keep showing up at 1600 in the right. press room, even though nobody else is going to be there, rather than everybody get together and say, we ain't even going to go up there anymore. So, so what are your thoughts about that and the impact, the lack of true journalism yeah. as, as a dying art and industry is having on, on all Yeah, so I've tried to be careful with this because I don't want to sound like the old guy who, you know, you do it the way I did in it. Okay. Yeah. But, but you're right in that journalism in its true form and journalism that you and I were raised on is dying, if not dead. Even those who are on the air now, save just a small handful, who were trained in the same way, um, the powers that be say, we don't want that. Right. Just go right. on and give opinion, get things riled up on the cable side because that's what gets people tuned in. Right. There's an old adage that says people get the leadership they deserve. Mm -hmm. And in a real sense, people get the media they deserve. And if you get excited by watching fights every night, and you can say, see, I told you, um, then that's what you get. And all the while, you have people behind curtains because you're so busy over here, they're planning other things that you never even know about, never even think about. I, I've contended that if you could bring to present-day Watergate, it would have never been discovered. Right. Nixon right. would have continued to be president. <laughs> right. Because right. not only would Woodward and Bernstein not have had the opportunity, an investigative unit would have already been eliminated from that newspaper. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you wouldn't have had the wherewithal to even conduct all that went on that changed a nation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the proof in that, too. I mean, that's just not that's just not a hypothesis. I mean, we can prove it. When Woodward got access to the Bush White House, what did he do? He wrote books right. of praise and hagiography and everything else. So it's like, wait a minute, this ain't the same person. You, how are you scrutinizing one administration and not this one? He traded water, what he did in Watergate for, uh, for access. And another thing that's dying, and we talk about this in the book, is the black press. Hey. And the idea of the importance. You know, black folk, I, Roland Martin and I talk about this. I mentioned it in the book. Roland and I laugh about when black folks say to us, if we were on CNN or MSNBC, um, people would say, oh, I saw you on last That's night. Right. Da, da, That's, da, right. Da. That's right. If we were on BET or, in his case, TV, one, people were like, when, when are you going to get back on real TV? That's right. That's right. We, we don't even give our mm. own um, the kudos and the respect that's deserved. Tiffany Cross says in the book, Tiffany used to work for me at BET, she said, and I, and I get upset because some of the best television I've ever been involved with, and at that point she was not a pundit, she was a, a, an associate producer, she said some of the best things I've ever done on television, some of the best specials I've ever seen, we did at BET, right. but no one saw them in the sheer numbers than some of the specials that are on other networks that aren't nearly as good. Right, right. So I think we have to. That's part of changing that narrative. We talk about supporting one another, yet we don't. And, and, and when I say we don't, I don't mean that as a definitive statement. Mm -hmm. I just mean we don't in a way we should or in the way we talk about. We can do a lot better. The talent, some of the talent you have in this book, Conversations in Black, some of the names you just mentioned, I mean, this is powerhouse talent, including your own. I mean, we, we ought to have our own medium. At this, especially now with this hour, I just heard the other day, uh, Fox is going to do a streaming platform on the phone mm -hmm. called Fox Soul. Mm -hmm. Fox Soul, and then people going to fall over themselves and look at Fox Soul there, Gordon. So we need. <laughs> how how do we build our own with people like you and Roland and Tiffany and so and, and Angela? So and Roland's Picard. a great example. Roland is working his butt off to yeah. try to make his program. That he will own and that he's I, – I give Roland this. Roland is Roland, right? Yeah. I mean, we all know and love him, but he's Roland Martin, and you either take him or you, you don't. Roland's right. very little gray area for people. <laughs> That's right. People either love him or not so much. But he is a hard worker, and he is dedicated to making his dream a reality. And I think more of us – look at what Tyler Perry has done. And we talk about that extensively in this book. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Man. what Tyler has done – I just saw him yesterday, uh, you know – whether you like his art or not, the idea that he has become the mogul he's become mm -hmm. is remarkable. <clears throat> I was just in Atlanta working on something that we hope in 2020 we'll be able to announce that will be our ownership. 
okay, that is going to hit television. Um, and I think all of us have to kind of look in the mirror. I was just talking with a member of my team today at lunch about stop talking about what you want to do. And it sounds simple, but we don't do enough of it and go do it. So finally, I dipped into my bank account. All right. And I said, okay, you've been talking about doing this for X. So get it started. Don't keep waiting on somebody to give you an okay, a green light, a little check to get, you know, the first one done. Go do it. Yeah. So that's what I've been doing the last two months along with this book. That's why I'm so tired. I know that's right. um, I think we just have to start doing and believe that we can do. A couple chapters also in the book. Uh, dealing with a black man stand up, black men stand up, black men struggling in America and how to help them, black girls magic, empowering black women today. Um, again, unfortunately, back to social media, you know, we, we seeing these debates and, and you alluded to it, you know, people like to see fights. So we're in a reality TV culture. That's why we have a reality TV president. Um, but in the conversations about black women and black men, um, is can we simultaneously talk about empowering black women and the new realization of the power of black women, black women even leading white women to prevent a pedophile to mm-hmm. be in the Senate, and at the same time talk about rescuing black men? Do we have enough bandwidth as a people to Absolutely. do both of those at the Absolutely. same time. Absolutely. Uh, I, 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 you know, they're not mutually exclusive. The reality is black men, on one hand, get a bad rap. Of course. Not only from the media, but sometimes from black women. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I understand why, because we've not done enough to show our shining lights, nor have we done enough within our circle to hold one another accountable. And I don't mm-hmm. mean a sister holding a brother accountable. Mean, I mean brothers, brothers holding brothers accountable. accountable. Right, right. We, we talk about that again. We talk about it, but we don't do it. Uh, we talk about Nipsey Hussle in the book. And I think Nipsey's death really elevated the discussion about manhood to a great degree. You mm. know, it's brothers in L.A. that have formed a book club now solely on the idea that when they found out about Nipsey and his love of reading and, and discovery, that they said, man, I, uh, we need to do that. And so I think... Going back to what I said, what we hope this book will be, the idea of a new narrative. So black men need to paint a new narrative of who we are and what our expectation is. I tell folks this all the time. I've been light my entire life. (laughs) I've had green eyes and curly hair my entire life. When I walk in a room, uh, you know, there's a – Anthony Anderson is a dear friend of mine, Uh and and he jokes about, oh, here come pretty Ricky. (laughs) Now, I know that's a joke to a degree. But there is this sense of if you're too dark, you're a thug. If you're too light, you know, you're soft. If you're too – well, anybody who knows me understands I grew up in Detroit. Mm. I tell them, okay, you know, I defy you to think there's a bigger N-word than me in a lot of circumstances, even though I'm light. (laughs) I said if color is the delineation line to being black, then what you're telling me is Clarence Thomas is blacker than Louis Farrakhan. Mm. And if you want to take that bet, I'll put a dollar to a donut any day on it. And so what we have to do is start saying there are certain expectations. Think about, and and this isn't all reflective in a romantic way, but when we came up, there was an expectation if you were headed in the right direction of what you were going to do, what your community expected of you, you know, a lot of people went to college on the backs of their community. And there was an expectation, we're going to give you this money, we're going to get you in school, but you know what? You ain't coming back mid-semester talking about I flunked out. You've got an expectation mm-hmm. of making it. Mm-hmm. All of those things that were tried and true and kept us going mm-hmm. have to some degree kind of waned. Mm-hmm. We've got to stop that. So there are a lot of brothers who are brilliant, brilliant and out here doing it. There are too many brothers who aren't. And Mm. they need help from us, not others, from us. And by us, I mean black men. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sisters are doing it, but also in the the book we talk about the idea of there are a group of sisters who aren't involved in black girl magic. They're not the second coming of Olivia Olivia Pope, no matter, you know, what they're wearing on their feet. 
Um, mm. And so as we salute all of the wonderful things that black women are doing uh, in this country, we need to make sure that uh, sisters know that um, there are a group that aren't caught up quite yet and that every sister who has a Gucci bag and red bottoms is not doing everything mm -hmm. that she can do and isn't even necessarily supremely successful. Mm -hmm. She just got a nice shopping trip. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's, that's real talk. Uh, speaking of checking other men, it, it's something, it's some other news has just unfolded in the past few days that I, I looked at with some interest. Um, and you mentioned, you know, how, you know, there have been some black women that have been hard on black men. One of those who's accused of that, and I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it, um, I'm not on that bandwagon, is Oprah. People say, oh, she's hard on black men. And there was this whole debate. She was supporting the release of the movie the about Russell Simmons Russell, yeah. going to Apple TV. Um, and then she pulled back from it. And, and I thought that was significant in terms of us because, so what are we now saying? Is Are, are people going to now say Oprah is not as hard on black men? Um, you know, yeah. are, are, on the other hand, is if, are we as black men, are we... Are we exercising enough tough love to brothers like, you know, Russell Simmons. And then Lord knows the whole R. Kelly thing, which which I I appreciate the evolution of the R. Kelly story because the yes. documentary has clearly awakened a lot of people, even awakened a lot of men. Um, but by the same token, some of us awake, where's the documentary on? Weinstein and Epstein and all these other people. But we, but but you know, I think that's something we've done for too long, right? Okay. So if there's a Weinstein documentary and Epstein documentary and it's all over Facebook, it doesn't change the fact right. that R. Kelly uh, allegedly was and a tremendous predator to black women mm -hmm. and girls. And so um, again, doesn't have to be mutually exclusive, and you know, there's there's fairness and coverage, but it it doesn't. Uh, excuse the fact that our community turned away from some of this. Uh, you know, I did the the first sit down with R. Kelly. That's right. Um, and people <laughs> then were ready to boycott, and he ain't this and he ain't that, and then he dropped Chocolate Factory. Mm. <laughs> we were like, oh, <laughs> damn, did you hear that, though, yeah, man? That's yeah. the jam. Can't we uh, boycott the next one? Right. And it sold millions and millions and millions of copies. Mm. We talk a lot about, R. Kelly in the book, Alicia Garza, um, one of the sisters who's credited with the Black Lives Matter movement, and um, Tarana Burke, who Me Too is in the book as well, April Rain, um, Oscar So White, and they all talk about the idea of, of where we sit with, um, you know, and how we turned away in a blind eye to a great degree uh, on the R. Kelly situation. So, you know, when I talk about new narratives, we have to be brave enough to look in the mirror and seek our truth, even if we believe it not to be popular in the community. Because sometimes that thought is far more popular than you believe. It's just people aren't brave enough to say it out loud. I mean, Harry Belafonte says in no uncertain terms that he does in the book, he says, I don't believe Barack Obama did enough for mm -hmm. uh, black America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he didn't put a caveat to it. He didn't say anything other than, and I said, not enough. And he was like, N-O-T, spelled right. it out. That's right. He did. He did. He did. Amazing. Um, you mentioned Oscar. just want to mention the, the, the actor or actress that was nominated is, is one that has fallen into this category of being black enough. She was attacked again on social media for portraying Harriet Tubman, Cynthia Irvo, um, and you know some of these crazy people. Say, well, that's she's British Nigerian. We should have an African American in this yeah. role. What? The <laughs> so you know that's an opinion. Uh, you know, if, if you want to talk about authenticity, you can make that argument. But isn't that what acting is about now? You know, the question of um, I had this discussion about cultural appropriation and how we define it. You know, is it cultural appropriation if a British person of color comes over and plays an American person of color? Um, does that mean Idris Elba should have never been in the wire? He ain't from mm -hmm. Baltimore. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's from overseas. 
you know, should he have not been right. that character who he was applauded for and really springboarded him to the stardom that he found? Um, these are, you know, fair enough discussions, but I think sometimes this sense of, again, goes back to am I black enough for you? Who Who's defining it? So, you know, mm-hmm. does that mean that the brothers who played white historical characters in Hamilton should have never been in that play? That's true. Right. That's a good point. That's right? a really good point. Yeah. So all of us who buy black Santas every Christmas and proudly display them around the crib, <laughs> uh, should we take them down and never bring them out again? Right. Right. Because whether you like it or not, Santa was not created black. No. Should we never have a black James Bond? You can have a black 007 because mm. that's the number that the agency gives him, but you cannot have, if you believe this uh, school of thought, a black James Bond. Bond. You have a black 007, right. Good but point. we were ready for Idris <laughs> to play it. That's right. That's right. Right? That's right. So I think that um, we just need to be mindful and really think about where we sit, what makes sense, and and what makes sense for our time in terms of the time you spend on something? Mm. How much air are you using on certain things that really don't make a difference at all? Right. And and are not that important. Conversations in Black on power, politics, and leadership. Strongly recommend this, folks. We need to be having fruitful discussions like this within our own community, um, sitting together, talking together, not just on social media, not just on the gram and on Twitter, uh, we we ought to spend time with each other. You know, I I I, I remember when, you know, at my grandmother's table, we couldn't. There wasn't no such thing as being on the phone, and being around elders and texting and all that kind of stuff. These are conversations we should have, and and our brother Ed Gordon has even again included in it some. Really, I guess some some study questions, some conversation questions that hopefully will spur us on. And I'll I'll. I'll admittedly say this and candidly say this. I fought back and forth with the publishers about that because I thought sometimes the questions, in in my opinion, and I'll even say this, you know, are, are, are a little elementary. Um, but I think as I reflect now, um, mm-hmm. it's a springboard question. Of course, yeah. yeah. It's a springboard question. And, and to your point about having those Sunday dinners off and with everybody there, the wisdom that you didn't appreciate until later on That's right. was there when your That's uncle right. was saying something or we, when you heard the stories about what life was like before you came. You know, all of us believe the world started when we came. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and the wisdom that can be gained, and that's the importance, I say this in the book, of finding a way to make sure that NAN and Urban League and NAACP survive with Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. and coalesce. We've got Tommy Smith in the book, and he talks about the activism that he and John Carlos did in 68 and what he sees uh, today. I mean, the want for us is just to get people moving. Mal- Malcolm D. Lee talks about the importance in his mind when he um, produces and directs a program of giving a true uh, representation of our images, not just a stereotypical one, nor a polished one that is too idyllic, which is is why I love Blackish. As much as Mm -hmm. I love The Cosby Show, Mm -hmm. and and I could argue that it was my favorite show of all time, it was a very polished, idyllic look at where Blackish it's more real in terms it of is. the day-to-day. And it so, is. but I think both were important. And when you throw good times in there, that's right. then we've got a collective of what we black sure America is, as we should. Yeah, we, we sure do. I, I confessed over the holidays, man, I I binged on good times reruns. For, mm-hmm. I haven't done that mm-hmm. in years. Mm-hmm. You know, I just <laughs> went back there for some reason. And, and think about, let me just say this quickly. When we talk about images and how important it is, Think about the change of that show when John Amos's character was killed yeah, off. Yeah, there it is. There it is. And the importance of seeing him those first few seasons as a, albeit poor, a strong black male That's right. figure. That's right. I put heading in quotes for sisters who don't like yeah, that term. Yeah, yeah. But heading that family 
who took no gruff off of anyone, black, mm -hmm. white, or otherwise, mm -hmm. who was there and present. And so that gave us something to shoot for. Yeah, yeah. Just as in his own comedic way, and ridiculously comedic way, um, George Jefferson yeah. was something to aspire to, living yeah. up in the clouds. Right. And again, taking no gruff. As flawed as that character was, right, right. he still could say, kiss my black ass. <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. Ed Gordon, folks, Conversations in Black on Power, Politics, and Leadership. This is great. Congratulations. Thank you, bro. Very important conversation, folks. You all need to be having it. We all need to be having it together, especially now in 2020. Our lives depend on it, folks. Uh, check it out. We're going to make a required reading uh, for our audience and available everywhere, Conversations in Black. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Good to see you, man. All right, folks, let's make it plain. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Also, subscribe to Make It Plain and Get Woke daily. Check out makeitplain.com to subscribe. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.